merry meeting, blessed be. Welcome one and all to the Spiral Dance.
Mary Mead, and welcome to this week's edition of the Spiral Dance. I'm Hawthorne, and I'm very happy you could join me. We're just listening to Lorena McKennett with Dark Night of the Soul. Hey, Happy New Year, by the way. Sorry I missed last week. Had some tech problems. Couldn't help it. But anyway, this week here on the Spiral Dance, we're going to be talking about the Philosopher's Stone. Well, just what is the Philosopher's Stone? Where does it come from? Is it even a stone? Now, this question has been bothering people for generations, and it bothers me. Some people just give up, and they say, well, it's just a lot of poetic rhetoric. And others say, no, look, I've done this. I've got it right here. Some say it's all devilry. Some say it's all God stuff. Well, you could choose as we try to sort it all out. Going to have the spiral dance spell week towards the end of the show. That is all coming up for you. Here's music right now from Faith and Disease with Beauty and Bitterness here on the Spiral Dance with Hawthorne. Oh, like a 
Yeah, we're talking about the Philosopher's Stone here on the Spiral Dance. Philosopher's Stone is a legendary alchemical substance. It's capable of turning base metals like mercury into gold or silver. But it was much more than that. The Philosopher's Stone has been attributed with many mystical and magical properties. The most commonly mentioned properties are the ability to heal all forms of illness and prolong the life of any person who consumes a small part of it. Other properties include creation of perpetually burning lamps, reviving of dead plants, creation of flexible or malleable glass, or the creation of a clone or a homunculus. The Philosopher's Stone was also thought to be able to extend your life, and so it was called the Elixir of Life. It was believed to be useful for achieving immortality. It was also the central symbol of the mystical terminology of alchemy, symbolizing perfection at its finest, enlightenment and heavenly bliss. Efforts to discover the Philosopher's Stone were known as the Magnum Opus, or the Great Work. Descriptions of the Philosopher's Stone are numerous and they're various. According to alchemical texts, the stone came in two varieties prepared by an almost identical method. There was the white for the purpose of making silver and the red for the purpose of making gold, the white stone being a less matured version of the red stone. Some ancient and medieval alchemical texts leave clues to the physical appearance of the stone, specifically the red stone. It's often said to be orange or saffron colored or red when ground to powder or in a solid form an intermediate between red and purple, transparent and glass-like. The weight is spoken of as being heavier than gold, and it is soluble in any liquid, yet incombustible in fire. Alchemical authors sometimes suggest that the stone's descriptors are metaphorical. It's called a stone, not because it's, you know, like a stone. The appearance is expressed geometrically in Malcolm Mayer's Atalanta Fugians, quoting, Make of a man and woman a circle then a quadrangle, out of this a triangle. Make again a circle, and you will have the stone of the wise. Thus it made the stone, which thou canst not discover, unless you, through diligence, learn to understand the geometrical teaching." Unquote. Another alchemist, Rupesia, uses the imagery of the Christian passion, telling us it ascends, quoting, from the sepulture of the most excellent king, shining and glorious, resuscitated from the dead, and wearing a red diadem, unquote. Earliest mention of the Philosopher's Stone in writing can be found in a work from 300 AD known as Cherok Meta by Zosimus of Panopolis, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. However, the writer Elias Ashmole and the anonymous author of Gloria Mundi from 1620 claimed that its history goes from who acquired the knowledge of the stone directly from God. 
This knowledge was said to be passed down through biblical patriarchs, giving them their longevity. The theoretical roots outlining the stone's creation can be traced to Greek philosophy. Alchemists later used the classical elements, the concept of anima mundi, and creation stories presented in texts like Plato's Timaeus as analogies for their process. For example, according to Plato, the four elements are derived from a common source or prima materia associated with chaos. Prima materia is also the name alchemists assign to the starting ingredient for the creation of the Philosopher's Stone. The importance of this philosophical first matter persisted through the history of alchemy. In the 17th century, Thomas Vaughan writes, quoting, The first matter of the stone is the very same with the first matter of all things, unquote. The 9th century Persian alchemist Jabar Ibn Hayyan, Latinized as Geber, analyzed each classical element in terms of the four basic qualities. Fire was both hot and dry, earth cold and dry, water cold and moist, and air hot and moist. He theorized that every metal was a combination of these four principles, two of them interior and two exterior. From this premise, it was reasoned that the transmutation of one metal into another could be affected by the rearrangement of its basic qualities. Now, this change would presumably be mediated by a substance which came to be called al-ixir in Arabic, from which the Western term elixir is derived. The al-ixir existed as a dry red powder, also known as al-kibrit al-ahmar, or red sulfur, made from a legendary stone, the Philosopher's Stone. Geber's theory was based on the concept that metals like gold and silver could be hidden in alloys and ores from which they could be recovered by the appropriate chemical treatment. Geber himself is believed to be the inventor of aquaregia, a mixture of hydrochloric and nitric acids, one of the few substances that can dissolve gold. But in the 11th century, there was a debate among Muslim chemists on whether the transmutation of substances was actually possible. A leading opponent was Ibn Sina, known in the West as Avicenna, who discredited the theory of transmutation of substances, stating, those of the chemical craft know well that no change can be effected in the different species of substances, though they can produce the appearance of such change. According to legend, the 13th century scientist and philosopher Albertus Magnus is said to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone and passed it to his pupil, Thomas Aquinas, shortly before his death in the year 1280. Magnus does not confirm he discovered the stone in his writings. He recorded that he witnessed the creation of gold by transmutation, and he said that Alchemic gold and iron lack the properties of natural gold and iron. Alchemical iron not being magnetic and alchemical gold turning it to powder after several ignitions. But over the centuries since his death, many stories arose about Albertus as an alchemist and magician. Much of the modern confusion results from the fact that later works were falsely attributed to Albertus by their authors to increase the presence of the text through association. In his authentic writings, Albertus had little to say on the subject, and then mostly through commentary on Aristotle, whom he studied and quoted from a great deal. In the 16th century, we meet a Swiss alchemist, Philippus Aurelius Theosphrastus Bombastus von Holmheim, 
also known as Paracelsius. He believed in the existence of Alkahest, which he thought to be an undiscovered element from which all elements, earth, fire, water, and air, were simply derivative forms. Paracelsus believed that this element was in fact the Philosopher's Stone. The English physician philosopher Sir Thomas Brown, in his spiritual testament Religio Medici from 1643, identified the religious aspect of the quest for the Philosopher's Stone when declaring, quote, The smattering I have of the Philosopher's Stone, which is something more than the perfect exaltation of gold, hath taught me a great deal of divinity, unquote. The equivalent of the Philosopher's Stone in Buddhism and Hinduism is the Sintamani. In Mahayana Buddhism, Sintamani is held by the Bodhisattvas Avalokiteshvara and Siddhagarbha. It is also seen carried upon the back of Lung Ta, or the wind horse, which is depicted on Tibetan prayer flags. By reciting the Dharani of Sintamani, Buddhist tradition maintains that one attains the wisdom of Buddhas, is able to understand the truth of the Buddhas, and turns afflictions into bodhi. It is said to allow one to see the holy retinue of Amitabha and his assembly upon your deathbed. In Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the Sitamana is sometimes depicted as a luminous pearl and is in the possession of several different forms of the Buddha. Within Hinduism, it is connected with the gods Vishnu and Ganesha. In Hindu tradition, it's often depicted as a fabulous jewel in the possession of the Naga king or as on the forehead of the Makara. The Yoga Vasista, originally written in the 10th century AD, purportedly contains a story about the Philosopher's Stone. It's believed that a great Hindu sage wrote about the spiritual accomplishments of Gnosis using the metaphor of the Philosopher's Stone. Saint Janashwar, who lived from 1275 to 1296, wrote a commentary with 17 references to the Philosopher's Stone that explicitly transmutes base metals into gold. The 17th century Indian sage Thirumular, in his classic Tirumandihiram, explains man's path to immortal divinity. In verse 2709, he declares that the name of God, Shiva, or the god Shambhala is an alchemical vehicle that turns the body into immortal gold.
Zosimus of Panopolis, also known as Zosimus the Alchemist, was a Greek alchemist and Gnostic mystic who lived at the end of the 3rd and the beginning of the 4th centuries AD. He was born in Panopolis, present-day Akmim, in the south of Egypt. He wrote the oldest known books on alchemy, of which quotations in the Greek language and translations into Syriac and Arabic are known. He is one of about 40 authors represented in a compendium of alchemical writings that was probably put together in Byzantium in the 7th or 8th centuries AD and that exists in manuscripts in Venice and Paris. Arabic translations of texts by Zosimus were discovered in 1995 in a copy of the book Keys of Mercy and Secrets of Wisdom by Alban al-Hassam ibn Ali al-Turaki, a Persian alchemist. Unfortunately, the translations were incomplete. The famous index of Arabic books, Kitab al-Firas by Ibn al-Nadim, mentions earlier translations of four books of Zosimus. However, due to inconsistency in transliteration, these texts were attributed to names Thosimus, Dosimus, and Remus. It's also it's possible that the two of them were translations of the same book. An historian known as F. Sejin has found 15 manuscripts of Zosimus in six libraries at Tehran, Istanbul, Gotha, Dublin, and Rampur. Michelle Mertens analyzes what is known about those manuscripts in her translation of Zosimus, concluding that the Arabic tradition seems extremely rich and promising and regretting the difficulty of access to these materials until translated editions are available. In general, Zosimus' understanding of alchemy reflects the influence of Hermetic and Gnostic spiritualities. He asserted that the fallen angels taught the arts of metallurgy to the women that they married, an idea also recorded in the book of Enoch and later repeated in the Gnostic Apocryphon of John. In a fragment preserved by Syncellus, Zosimus wrote, quoting, The ancient and divine writings say that the angels became enamored of women and descending taught them all the works of nature. From them, therefore, it's the first tradition, Kema, concerning these arts, for they called this book Kema, and hence science of chemistry takes its name, unquote. But the external processes of metal transmutation, the transformations of lead and copper into silver and gold, always mirrored an inner process of purification and redemption. Zosimus mentions this in concerning the book of Soph, the Egyptian and the divine master of the Hebrews and the Sabbath powers, quoting, There are two sciences and two wisdoms, that of the Egyptians and that of the Hebrews, which later is confirmed by divine justice. The science and wisdom of the most excellent to dominate the one and the other. Both originate in older times. Their origin is without a king, autonomous and immaterial. It's not concerned with material and corruptible bodies, it operates without submitting to strange influences supported by prayer and divine grace." Unquote. For Zosimus, the alchemical vessel was imagined as a baptismal font, and the tincturing vapors of mercury and sulfur were likened to be the purifying waters of baptism, which perfected and redeemed the Gnostic initiate. Zosimus drew upon the hermetic image of, of the crater, 
or mixing bowl in symbol of the divine mind of which the hermetic initiate was baptized and purified in the course of a visionary ascent through the heavens and into the transcendent realms. Similar ideas of a spiritual baptism in the waters of the transcendent Piroma are characteristic of the Sethian Gnostic texts unearthed at Nag Hammadi, and this image is the alchemical vessel as baptismal font is central to his visions. One of Zosima's texts is about a sequence of dreams related to alchemy and presents the proto-science as a much more religious experience. In his dream, he first comes to an altar and he meets Ion. The Sabians considered Ion the founder of their religion. Ion calls himself the priests of the inner sanctuaries and I submit myself to an unendurable torment. Ion then fights and impales Zosimus with a sword, dismembering him in accordance with the rule of harmony, referring to the division into four bodies, natures, and elements. He takes the pieces of Zosimus to the altar and burned them upon the fire of the art till I perceived, quoting, till I perceived by the transformation of the body that I had become spirit, unquote. From there, Ion carries blood and horribly melts into the opposite of himself into a mutated anthroparion, which Carl Jung perceived as the first concept of the homunculus in alchemical literature. Zosimus wakes up, asks himself, is not this the composition of the waters? And returns to sleep, beginning the visions again. He constantly wakes up, ponders to himself, and returns to sleep during these visions. Returning to the same altar, Zosimus finds a man being boiled alive, yet still alive, who says to him, the sight that you see is the entrance and the exit and the transformation. Those who seek to obtain the art or moral perfection enter here and become spirits by escaping from the body, which can be regarded as human distillation, just as how distilled water purifies it, distilling the body purifies it as well. He then sees a brazen man or a leaden man, another homunculus, as Jung believed any man described as being metal, is perceived as being a homunculus. Zosimus also dreams of a place of punishments where all who enter immediately burst into flames and submit themselves to an unendurable torment. Jung believed these visions to be the sort of alchemical allegory with the tormented homunculi personifying transmutations, burning or boiling themselves to become something else. The central image of the visions are the sacrificial act, with each homunculus endures. In alchemy, the diophysite nature is constantly emphasized. Two principles balancing one another, active and passive, masculine and feminine, which constitute the eternal cycle of birth and death. This is also illustrated in the figure of the Uruboros, the dragon that bites its own tail, and which appears earliest in the Chrysopeia. Self-devouring is the same as self-destruction, but the unison of the dragon's tail and mouth was also taught of as self-fertilization. Hence the text Tractatus Avicenne mentions the dragon slays itself, weds itself, and impregnates itself. In the visions, circular thinking appears in the, the sacrificial priest's identity with his victim and in the idea that the homunculus unto whom Ion is changed, devours himself. He spews forth his own flesh and rends himself with his own teeth. 
The homunculus therefore stands for the Euroboros, which devours itself and gives birth to itself. Since the homunculus represents the transformation of Ion, it follows that Ion, the Euroboros, and the sacrifice are essentially the same.
So there's a lot of synonyms that have been used to make oblique reference to the Philosopher's Stone. Here's a few. Calculus Albus, identified with the Calculus Candidus of Revelation 2.17, which was taken as a symbol of the glory of heaven. Also, there's Lapis Noster, Lapis Occultus, which is water at the box. Also, there are numerous oblique mystical and mythological references like, um, like Adam, Air, Animal, Alkahist, Antidotus, Antimonium, Aqua Benedicta, Aqua Balans per Anan, Arcanum, Ultramentum, um, Crocus Dominus, Philosopherium, Divine Quintessence, Draco Elixir, Filius Ignis, Firmus Fulum, Freighter, um, Granum, Granum Fermenti, Hermonititas, Herbalis, Lock, Melancholia, Folium, Freighter, Granum, Granum Fermenti, Panacea, Panacea, Sula Tefera, Pandora, Phoenix, Philos Philosophic Mercury, Pyrites, uh, Regina, Rex Regnum, um, Salvatore Terrenus, Talcum, Pterosaurus, Ventus, Hermetus. Many of the medieval allegories for a Christ were adopted for the Lapis, and the Christ and the stone were indeed taken as identical in a mystical sense. The name of stone or lapis itself is informed by early Christian allegory, such as Priscillian from the 4th century. In some texts, it's simply called stone or our stone, or in the case of Thomas Norton's Ordinal, Ora Delicia stone. The stone was frequently praised and referred to in those terms. The various names and attributes assigned to the Philosopher's Stone has led to long-standing speculation on its composition and source. Exoteric candidates have been found in metals, plants, rocks, chemical compounds, and bodily products like hair, urine, and eggs. Justice von Liebig states that it was indispensable that every substance accessible should be observed and examined. Alchemists once thought a key component in the creation of the stone was a mythical element named karmat. Early esoteric hermetic alchemists may reject work on exoteric substances, instead directing their search for the philosopher's stone inward. Though esoteric and exoteric approaches are sometimes mixed, it's clear that some authors are not concerned with material substances but are employing the language of exoteric alchemy for the sole purpose of expressing theological, philosophical, or mystical beliefs and aspirations. New interpretations continued to be developed around spagyric, chemical, and esoteric schools of thought. concept of alchemy revolves around the opus, a sacred pursuit for the ultimate truth and value. Alchemical writings extensively discuss the nature of the opus and the attitude one should adopt while undertaking it. One text says, O oh, all ye seekers after this art, ye can reach no useful result without a patient, laborious, and solicitous soul, persevering courage, and continuous regimen. Certain virtues are deemed essential prerequisites 
acting as requirements for one's ego functioning. Patience forms the foundation, while courage entails facing anxiety with determination. The continuous regimen demands unwavering dedication to understanding and examining the unfolding events, regardless of shifts in mood or mental state. A significant aspect of the opus is its sacred nature, demanding a religious approach. Woe unto you who fear not God, for he may deprive you of this art. Our art, its theory as well as its practice, is altogether a gift of God, who gives it when and to whom he elects. It is not of him that wills, or of him that runs, but simply through the mercy of God. This necessitates a mindful awareness of the transpersonal realm of the psyche, prompting one to be self-oriented rather than ego-oriented. The paradox lies in the fact that the ultimate goals of psychotherapy involve attaining self-awareness and a religious attitude, which are not initially mandatory, but must exist as potential from the outset. To find the philosopher's stone, as an alchemist says, one must begin with a fragment of it. As the process deepens, it becomes evident that insights come through grace, and personal development occurs not through the ego's will, but by the urge for individuation from the self. Another vital aspect of the opus is its highly individualistic nature, with alchemists being primarily solitaries. While they might have had one assistant, the process of individuation is fundamentally experienced alone, in its deepest essence. The opus cannot be a collaborative effort. It brings about a certain detachment from the world for a certain period. But when God grants his grace to someone who understands the art, this will appear incomprehensible in the eyes of the world, and those who have this mystery will be scorned of men and looked down upon. This corresponds to psychotherapy, which is incomprehensible from an external perspective. The collective and conventional standpoint tend to scorn and ridicule it, either through the judgment of others or one's own inner critic. Parallel to this text are these words of Jesus. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, because I have chosen you out of the world, for that reason, the world hates you. Secrecy is another significant feature of the opus. Alchemists considered themselves guardians of a mystery that should not be disclosed to the unworthy. Therefore, you should carefully test and examine the life, character, and mental aptitude of any person who would be initiated in this art. And then you should bind him by a sacred oath not to let our magistery be commonly or vulgarly known. Only when he begins to grow old and feeble, he may reveal it to one person, but not to more. And that one man must be virtuous and generally approved by his fellows. For this magistery must always remain a secret science, and the reason that compels us to be careful is obvious. If any wicked man should learn to practice this art, the event would be fraught with great danger to Christendom, for such a man would overstep all bounds of moderation and would remove from their hereditary thrones those legitimate princes who rule over the peoples of Christendom and the punishment of this wickedness would fall upon him who had instructed that unworthy person in our art. In order then to avoid such an outbreak of overweening pride, he who possesses the knowledge of this art should be scrupulously careful how he delivers it to another, and should regard it as the peculiar privilege of those who excel in virtue. From a psychological standpoint, the matter becomes more nuanced. A secret that can be shared loses its true essence. The psyche secrets are safeguarded as they remain incommunicable to those who haven't experienced them firsthand. The misuse of this secret, as mentioned in the text, 
hints at an inflation where the ego identifies with archetypal images. Failure to treat transpersonal energies as sacred and concealed may lead to their misapplication, resulting in destructive consequences. This misuse of the alchemical mystery can be likened to the misuse of the Eucharistic mystery, as stated by the Apostle Paul. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of desecrating the body and the blood of the Lord. A man must test himself before eating his share of the bread and drinking from the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not discern the body. When approached without discernment, the profound significance of both mysteries is lost, and their transformative potential is squandered. Hence, protecting the sacredness and secrecy of these experiences is vital for their proper understanding and meaningful impact on one's journey of self-discovery. The alchemical opus represents a profound concept, viewed as a process initiated by nature, but requiring conscious human effort to reach completion. This state cannot be perfected by the mere progress of nature, for gold has no propensity to move itself so far, but rather chooses to remain in its constantly abiding body. Nature serves art with matter, and art serves nature with suitable instruments and method convenient for nature to produce such new forms. And although the Philosopher's Stone can only be brought to its proper form by art, yet the form is from nature. In one aspect, the opus seems to oppose nature, but in another, the alchemist is assisting nature in accomplishing what it cannot do alone. This notion aligns with the evolution of consciousness. While the impulse toward consciousness resides within nature, embedded in the unconscious psyche, an ego is necessary to fully realize this innate urge. It is essential for individuals to intentionally cooperate in the task of fostering consciousness within themselves. The most profound statements concerning the alchemical opus draw parallels between it and the creation of the world. Zosimos expresses, The symbol of chemistry is founded on the creation of the world, while the emerald tablet concludes its alchemical recipe with the words, Thus the world has been created. Another text, after describing the preparation of a special water, continues as follows. When this has been done, take a drop of the consecrated red wine and let it fall into the water, and you will instantly perceive a fog and thick darkness on top of the water, such as also was at the first creation. Then put in two drops, and you will see the light coming forth from the darkness, whereupon little by little put in every half of each quarter hour first three, then four, then five, then six drops, and then no more, and you will see with your own eyes one thing after another appearing by and by on top of the water, how God created all things in six days and how it all came to pass, and such secrets as are not to be spoken aloud, and one also have not power to reveal. Fall on your knees before you undertake this operation. Let your eyes judge of it, for thus was the world created. From a psychological perspective, these texts equate the individual with the world, implying that individuation is a process akin to world creation. This idea shares similarities with Schopenhauer's bold statement in his work, The World as Will and Idea, where he claims, The world is my idea, and Jung's notion of the world-creating quality of consciousness. Although such ideas are potentially prone to solipsistic inflation and can be common in psychosis, they possess an archetypal significance, providing individuals with a necessary perspective to avoid being consumed by collective, impersonal norms. Despite the complexity and confusion often found in alchemical writings, 
The basic outline of the opus is relatively straightforward. The primary goal is to create a transcendent and miraculous substance, symbolized in various ways as the philosopher's stone, the elixir of life, or the universal medicine. The procedure involves initially discovering the appropriate material, referred to as the prima materia, and then subjecting it to a series of operations that lead to the transformation into the philosopher's stone. Okay, that was Enya we were just listening to doing Pilgrim. And we also heard a piece from Edward Edinger, Edward F. Edinger. And it was called Alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone. It's available on YouTube. It's really interesting stuff. He has other things to listen to as well. 
We heard also Magenta doing Eccentricity. Arcanta was in there with the Solitary Pilgrim. And we started this week's set off with Faith and Disease doing Beauty and Bitterness. Now it's time for this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week. And this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week is for, uh, how about Tuesday, the, uh, the 9th of January. And this is called A Spell for Harmony and Peace. Well, that's a nice place to start, right? On a violet-colored cloth with a pleasing pattern, place a purple candle. Next to it, place a small, flat disc of salt. Light some lavender incense and breathe deeply. Then let out your breath in a lovely tone. As you breathe and and intone, light the candle. Still your voice and draw a pentacle in the salt. As you say, by air fire, water, earth, and spirit, hearken my prayer, all those who hear it. Let there be peace and let there be harmony. Blessed be wild and free. Chant the verse nine times and then return to your single tone. Breathe deeply and envision being filled with this peace and harmony. Then extinguish the candle in thankfulness. Okay, that was offered by Gail Wood. It appeared in the 2006 Witches Spell Day Almanac. That is a really nice way to start off the new year, isn't it? Give that spell a try. Send me an email, radiohawthorne at yahoo.com. Spiral Dance, here's David Bowie with Heroes. I 
Okay, David Bowie right there with Heroes, and that's going to do it for me for this week. I want to thank you for joining me. I had a great time talking about the Philosopher's Stone. I hope you enjoyed it, too. I'll be back again next week with a brand new show. Until then, merry part. Until merry meet again. Blessed be.